Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It's always up to speed with Formula One. It's Sunday night. Mar- Sorry, I was going to say March 23rd, May 23rd, uh, 2021. Mark and Mark Daly and Hamilton here to recap what was a very interesting and entertaining and dramatic Monaco Grand Prix. And um, I don't even know where to get into this one. I went back. I watched the race this afternoon. I watched, I actually had to go back and watch qualifying again before we sat down this evening just to try and absorb everything again. There is a lot that happened, even though there may not have been like the the huge bounty of overtaking that we would want to see, but we typically we don't see it, Monaco. But yet, I felt it was an enjoyable race to watch. What was your takeaway, Mark? I pause because I'm trying. I'm trying. Even now, hours later, I- I'm still trying to gather my thoughts on mm-hmm. what we saw this weekend. It was interesting. Like, I think, to be fair, it wasn't a great race. By no means was it a great race. But no. the weekend as a whole was still very interesting. A lot of very interesting things happened. And I think there's some good stuff for us to talk about. But I'll be the first to acknowledge it. And maybe maybe the two of you, or the two of us were a little bit guilty of building Monaco up to be something that it's never going to be to so many of our, our, our newer listeners that are newer to the sport. Monaco's special for a lot of reasons. And we'll probably get into this throughout the, <clears throat> the course of the podcast. But ultimately, the Formula One racing cars of today aren't necessarily suited to its tight twisty, winding streets, and we're never going to see a really classic duel. We're never going to see a ton of overtaking. But that said, the weekend was still interesting, and I think we still have some really cool stuff to to break into. Okay, well, before we get into that, let's just run down the uh, 10 top uh, positions here in the race classification. Max Verstappen winning his first Monaco Grand Prix, followed home by Carlos Sainz in the Ferrari, which is a bit of a shocker in and of itself. Lando Norris, P3 for McLaren. Sergio Perez in the second Red Bull. Good afternoon for Sergio. Made up quite a bit of ground on a track that uh, is notorious, as you said, for not very much overtaking. He was P4. Sebastian Vettel in the first of the Aston Martins, P5. Good to see Seb up there in the points and particularly in the top five. Pierre Gasly in the Alfa Tori. Lewis Hamilton, P7 for the Mercedes, in which was an absolutely brutal and uh, disappointing weekend for the team all around. Lance Stroll, P8 for the second uh, the second Aston Martin, so a double points finish for them, uh, first of the year, which was good to see. And then he had Esteban Alcon, P9 for Alpine, and then Antonio Giovinazzi rounding out the top 10. Now, this is where it gets uh, even more interesting. In the Drivers' Championship, uh, the, the first five places, we have Max Verstappen now leading the Drivers' Championship, 105 points, four points ahead of Lewis Hamilton with 101. Lando Norris, I wouldn't say comfortably in third, but sitting currently in third with 56 points, ahead of Valtteri Bottas with 47. Sergio Perez rounding out the top five in the Drivers' Championship with 44 points. Now then, equally as interesting, now in the Constructors' standings, Red Bull now top of the table with 149 points, a single point ahead of uh, Mercedes. Then you have uh, McLaren with 80 points, Ferrari with 78, and then Aston Martin with 19 points. So, Mark, dramatic uh, finish on the track, and it's really flipped the championships upside down. It's crazy. And one of the things that I heard listening to the Checkered Flag podcast earlier today, and it's funny because I was actually at that Grand Prix, but the last time that Mercedes didn't lead the Constructors' Championship was the British Grand Prix in the summer of 2018. They have had a stranglehold on the Constructors' Championship for three consecutive years now. And I think prior to that, they'd had a stranglehold for four or five years. So really, with the exception of that one kind of aberration in the summer of 2018, they have had a stranglehold. So this is... It's exciting. And whether it sticks or not, or whether it sustains or not, I think it could be a turning point. And it's something Mm -hmm. I think you and I have really been speaking to over the last couple of weeks and months that this is going to be a tight duel. And I think more often than not, a mistake, an error, they'll probably define the championship as much as a great drive might potentially do so. And I think if you look at the weekend, you're absolutely right. For me, the story is... It's less about what Red Bull did necessarily, and Max put in a great drive, and he had he had a great start. Didn't come out of the box really well, but mm-hmm. he fought off Valtteri in the first corner, and I, I, I'm strongly of the mind that Valtteri should have had that corner and taken the lead. But ultimately, it was more about what Mercedes didn't do as opposed to what Red Bull did. And full credit to Max for a great drive. 78 laps from the front of the uh, from the front of the pack that takes tremendous concentration. He didn't step a foot wrong. 
Kudos to Sergio. He looked really rough in practice, didn't look great in qualifying, but put together a great drive on the Grand Prix mm-hmm. Sunday, which was fantastic. But ultimately, and I don't know where we want to start, <laughs> you, you hinted this Mercedes had a terrible weekend. Lewis finished seventh, but if not for the fact that two cars DNF'd in front of them with Leclerc and Bottas, he would have finished ninth. Bottas DNF'd because of an error in the pit. But even before that, Hamilton, he didn't look great in practice. He wasn't great in qualifying. He probably would have qualified a little bit better if not for... Uh, that Leclerc incident with 23 seconds left. Yep. But ultimately, they didn't put together a great weekend. They scored virtually no championship points. And to your point, that's how Red Bull was able to leapfrog ahead of them. Yeah, well, you know, you, you touched on nicely there, just that incident with the Charles smacking into the barriers right at the very end of the last qualifying session there. It literally, when a lot of these guys were going to go and try and nail another hot lap after the, the, the time uh, was about to expire. So... It, it was interesting, and ultimately, a couple of guys really paid for the a couple. What was basically a, a really scruffy lap. Lewis was one. I mean, he tagged the barriers there, and uh, Sergio Perez. Sergio, I mean, he got a little bit up on the curbs in the same place, basically where uh, uh, Leclerc was going to have his accident. But then he also got really, really. Uh, caught out when he went around the corner there, the the, the final sharp corner there, uh, Raskas, and he, there, there was, what, about three cars all parked there at the side, and then, you know, he put the gas down, very nearly tagged the uh, the Armco barrier at the left rear of the car, so it was really sloppy, so he got, um, you know, caught out there, but I think he did a phenomenal job to finish where he did at the end of the race, I mean, he did very well to make up that amount of uh, space on a, tr- or a position on a track that is notorious uh, for, for you know, not having very many uh, opportunities, but it definitely was not a good look uh, for Mer- uh, Mercedes. I mean, the thing is, we've become so accustomed to them, like working like this fantastic, well-oiled machine. I mean, as Total Wolf and uh, many others have said over the years that uh, we're, we're, ch- we're chasing perfection here. And, and they have literally been the example of that, at least publicly. We don't know what... Uh, you know, what what uh, trials and tribulations go on behind closed doors uh, over the race weekends and in between races. But certainly the perception is that uh, things usually go their way, you know, be it in the garage, be it on the track, be it on the pit wall. You know, they, they tend to be on point. But the thing that we've seen over the years, that there have been these isolated incidents. And, you know, Monaco now has kind of reared its ugly head for them on a couple of occasions now this year and going back to 2017. So it is going to be fascinating to see how they rebound from this because we've seen in the past that whenever Mercedes has been dealt adversity like this they tend to go away from a race they double down on their efforts and they come back better than before so now going to Baku which is going to be fascinating and I I, I want to sort of parlay this into a little bit of the Ferrari discussion we'll have at some point as well so Baku is going to be a similar kind of circuit uh, you got these tight very sharp street type corners but where the difference is uh, with Baku City compared to Monaco, is you've got, yes, correct, the very long straightaway. So that's going to be fascinating from a couple points of view, uh, you know, for, for a couple of different teams here. But I'm now very, very fascinated to see what they're going to do in the interim now to turn this thing around. Because, uh, well, we heard Lewis talking about it. He was complaining about it on race radio. So you can imagine in the team debrief after the race that uh, there's going to be a lot of grumpy people there. I'm sure that uh, Bottas is going to be pretty choked about uh, the, incidents, uh, the, the incident that ruined his race with the stripped wheel nuts. And uh, yeah, I mean, just bad all around for them. And it'll be interesting to see how they turn it around. Or do they turn it around for next race? One of the things I always credit Lewis Hamilton for is in the event of a race victory, he's the first guy to praise the team. This is a team victory. Everyone in the garage was great. Everyone at the factory was great. Everyone at headquarters was great. But this weekend, he was very pointed about the fact that this was a Mercedes team failure across the board. And it's rare that you hear him speak like that. And ultimately, from his perspective, I think he was a little bit thrown off by the tire strategy. I think mm-hmm. he, was, he was expecting to go long. They they called him in early. He wasn't expecting that. But he didn't have the pace. He wasn't looking super racy. Again, you talk about qualifying as well and the fact that he was looking potentially to put in an additional hot lap when Leclerc hit the barrier. But ultimately, it's not like Lewis to have to wait until the final minute of Q3 to put in a great lap. Typically, he goes out there, he puts in a banger of a lap, and he's done. He, he, rarely, he rarely risks it in the way that he did this weekend. And maybe it wasn't so much that he was subconsciously just putting off that final hot lap until mm-hmm. the last minute, but rather <clears throat> the package wasn't there, the pace wasn't there, psychologically they weren't there. But I was also a little bit taken aback by a comment that Lewis had made on, and I'm not even going to repeat it on the air, but he'd made a comment uh, on Instagram relating to this weekend and he said quote unquote yeah this weekend sucked 
the B word. And again, I'm not going to say it out loud, but I'm just like, that's not like Lewis. That's not like Lewis of 2021 to make no. a comment like that. <clears throat> that's so inflammatory. And then from Bottas's perspective, heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. I fault him early on in the race. I feel like he had a better start. He he had a jump on, on Max Verstappen out of the box, and he had the better position going into that front corner. It's a right-hand turn. He had the inside line on Max, and he let off, and Max did it. And I honestly believe that Max understands the psychology of Bottas, knows he's a super, super conservative racer, but Bottas should have had him in that front corner. Mm-hmm. But then what happened when Bottas came in for the pit, and you spoke to this a couple minutes ago, and again, and serious, 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 uh, serious plug for our Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. We actually put up, we created a visual graphic to help understand what happened to Bottas in the pits. But what happened to him in the pits ultimately was heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely no fault to Bottas at all. And you could see him in the back of the garage after he got out of that car, just leaning down. His his elbows are on his knees and just heartbroken because again we all know and I think he knows that his job's at risk. Every point matters. Every podium matters. And for him to have a a potential podium robbed from him in this way is is heartbreaking. And I think it's challenging too because you don't know who or what to blame for what transpired. And I know a lot of folks reached out to us on Twitter, so I'll kind of speak to this quickly. But you see him go into the pit and that front right corner. The the mechanics couldn't get the nut off of the axle stud. They couldn't get it off, couldn't get it off, couldn't get it off. And what we think happened is that when it was put on, uh, there was some cross-threading of the threads. And there are only three to five threads on an F1 wheel because they want to be as efficient and optimized as possible. But ultimately, when the mechanic went at it with the gun, it basically blasted the fins, and the fins are what's on the nut that the gun grabs onto, grips onto, to turn the nut to pull it off of the stud. They actually blasted off, and you can actually see it in one of the video replays that we posted on Twitter. You could see the shards of a aluminum spray back at the mechanic i have never ever ever seen this in the history of formula one <laughs> no. so again just heartbreaking for for bottas yeah absolutely i i felt so bad for him because uh, you know when, when things like that uh, happen i mean it's completely out of your hands and uh, it was just uh, it was super super frustrating having to watch him uh, go through that and then well uh, we'll talk about the, the the ferrari bit in the uh the the, the next segment but uh, <clears throat> excuse me i was just going to say it was uh just going back to your comments about Lewis, but uh, and just uh, the way that uh, he was uh, just venting, just uh, very, very frustrated, both on social media, on the radio. I mean, I guess that isn't really new territory. I mean, we've seen sort of limited uh, outbursts, uh, you know, in the past. Uh, I, I guess the most notable one that really stands out in my memory of the final laps of 2016 at Abu Dhabi with the championship on the line, and you had uh, uh, what was it? Yeah, you know, and. Uh, Patty Lowe was on the radio. Yes, I was just drawing a blank there. Patty Lowe was like, come on, Lewis, you got to speed it up. You're, you're backing your teammate into, uh, I, I guess it was Sebastian and Max at that point, who I think they were content just to sit back and let the, these two do whatever that they wanted to. And then Lewis was like, well, I, I'm basically losing the championship, so I don't really, you know, it doesn't really matter to me. I can't remember his exact words. So that one sort of says, uh, stands out. And then occasionally, you know, he'll hear some something if like uh, some strategy goes wrong. He'll be like, okay, come on, guys, what are we doing here? We need to focus. So this was very out of character, but... I don't want to suggest that Max and Lewis kind of switched places. They sort of like switched bodies and cars or whatever it is for this weekend. But it was interesting watching Max. But maybe that is the the, the benefit of leading the Grand Prix in Monaco. And, uh, you know, you don't have, uh, you know, you're just worrying about the cars in front of you that you're trying to get around. And most of the time they are going to be pulling out of the way when waved with the blue flag, whether and having to, to scrap it out in the, um, you know, further down in, in the pack there. But I thought that Max... He didn't put a wheel wrong, not just to enter during the entire race, but to basically all through throughout the entire weekend. I know that he got a little, had a little bit of a moment. I think he sort of locked up maybe his brakes going into the, uh, <clears throat> into the tunnel on what I guess became his final hot lap in Q3. But I mean, other than that, he looked pretty good all weekend long. And just watching him lead that Grand Prix reminded me a lot of sort of the, the, the perfect flawless performances from, from Lewis Hamilton. That, that was my take. I don't know what you thought of that. Oh, I completely agree with everything you're saying. And I actually kind of want to refer to a tweet that one of our listeners tweeted at us earlier today, Jason Gallimore. And I quote, I'm not a Hamilton hater, but he seems so whiny on the radio. Like, yeah, man, mm-hmm. you really are in sixth place. Welcome to the reality for the first time in almost a decade for everyone not in that mega car you drive. And you kind of hit on it, which is what prompted me to go back and reflect on this tweet. But you're right. We, we often hear this type of... 
we kind of hear this commentary from Hamilton sometimes, but I think one of the things that's kind of played into Hamilton's hands over the better part of the last six or seven years is he's never really had to come from behind, either in an individual race or a championship. And really for the first time, except for that brief period in 2018 and a little bit in 2019, he's really coming from behind now, both on the track Mm -hmm. and off the track. And I'm as excited or I shouldn't say excited. I'm as curious to see how he responds off the track to this as I am to see how he responds on the track. Because again, what we're seeing from Hamilton both before the race, during the race, in terms of his commentary, in terms of his tweets, in terms of his responses to questions, it's it's a little un-Hamilton. And again, to Jason's point, what we hear on the radio from Hamilton isn't unusual. He's always very, I shouldn't say, because I don't know if it's a verb, but very complainy. His tires are always problematic. His mm. tires are gone. His tires are gone. Then he puts in four fastest laps in a row and wins the Grand Prix <laughs> by 20 seconds. Yeah. But I think what we heard today was a little bit... A little bit excessive even for Hamilton. So I'm very, very curious to see how this is going to play out because, again, he's potentially going to be facing pressures this year that really he hasn't seen since the back half of 2016. And ultimately, we all know how that championship played out. But very, very, very curious. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Mark, let's take a, a quick break here. And when we come back on the other side, let's uh, dive more into the tweets and the emails, whatever whatever else we have. And uh, we'll take it from there. And we'll do so in just a moment. So uh, don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, where should we take it uh, from here? Okay, uh, let's uh, go back uh, to the Twitters uh, at Die Hard Racers. About the different conspiracy theories of Leclerc's crash and qualifying, Hamilton's pace, Bottas's uh, pit stop drama, pace difference between Norris and Ricardo. So, I mean, there's a couple of things there. We've already touched on a couple of those. I mean, Hamilton's lack of pace. I mean, that I was actually very astounded by that. I think we've seen enough so far to really kind of get an idea of where these cars are, are good at and where they're not. The, the Mercedes, without a doubt, was the best package in Portugal, uh, Portugal and Spain, which were two very similar tracks. Then Imla, I think that maybe there was a slight edge to uh, Red Bull. And then Bahrain, I mean, I think Bahrain, they were fairly evenly matched. But I think on the tight streets of Monaco, I think that the, the the Red Bull was the better car, and it was it was just surprising the amount of pace. I mean, they looked like they were worlds ahead. But I mean, the one car, of course, that really surprised me. We touched about this very briefly in the the the, the weekly show a couple of days ago because the way that Monaco weekend runs, we had the benefit of having uh, practice uh, under our belts by the time we did the show and we talked about it. And just how pacey that uh, Ferrari were. I mean, if you look at the starting grid, uh, or sorry, qualifying, I should say. I mean, um, of course, Leclerc didn't uh, start the race. I mean. The, with the way that we lined up, rows one through five, we had Leclerc and Verstappen, Bottas and Sainz, Norris and Gasly, Hamilton and Vettel, and Perez and Giovinazzi. I mean, of course, uh, that that could have changed had Leclerc not crashed at the, the the very end there. But I mean, two Ferraris on the front row. I mean, probably in the, the the front two rows. I mean, absolutely uh, <laughs> mind boggling stuff compared to uh, where they've been. But. I was thinking about it a, a little bit too, and the, the one thing that you're not really punished for as much in Monaco is that uh, lack of top end, high end speed, right? So that that uh, they're going to need, say, next weekend in, in Baku, where you have these very long straightaways, or some of these other races where maybe I, I guess straight line speed isn't quite as uh, big of an issue that it has been, but I think that still it is. Uh, there, there are some areas that are lacking in this car, but I think when you take away a lot of these things. Because I mean, Monaco is, is a unique, uh, unique track in of, of itself, 
And I think maybe sort of when, when you boil everything down that at its very basic level, I think maybe that this Ferrari handles well, it's balanced well, it, uh, you know, I, I think it's fundamentally a good car on a slow track like that. But I mean, you take it uh, to any of the other 22 other tracks that we're going to race at this year. And uh, when you get into more of these uh, high performance environments, maybe that's where the warts start to, to, to show up on that car. Can we take credit now for our preseason predictions about the fact that Ferrari could be a little bit racy and could challenge McLaren for third place in the Constructors' Championship? And ultimately, if they hadn't had such bad luck this weekend, maybe they would be a little bit closer. In fact, they probably would have overtaken McLaren. And I just want to respond quickly to that comment from diehard racers, Petrol Heads, uh, that comment about different conspiracy theories related to Leclerc's crash. Because it's, it's curious, right? Mm-hmm, he puts mm-hmm. in a great lap, he's sitting on pole, and then he crashes. I, I just want to be ultra clear with everybody that there is no alternative universe imaginable where anybody, anybody sacrifices their car to secure pole. It, it, again, it's something that's going to feed the conspiracy theorists on Twitter, but that was not intentional. <laughs> if now, you're going to that- do it, do it like Michael Schumacher and just park your car at Raskas and get out and walk away. Exactly. Or, and this is what I was going to hint at because it's more recent, I would encourage every single one of our listeners to go and actually, you know, don't even Google. I'm just going to post it on Twitter. Um, Look at the 2014 Monaco qualifying. Nico Rosberg made a mistake going into a corner, ran into a runoff area. The yellow flags came out after he was on pole, which prevented Hamilton from putting in a hot lap that potentially would have put him on pole. Mm-hmm. To me, that was intentional. This certainly wasn't intentional at all. But I, I agree with your point. I think the package that Ferrari's been bringing this year is good. I don't think they're obviously going to be able to show the same top line speed that some of these other cars have. And and maybe they're a little bit racy at Baku, although that top, that kind of long straight uh, along the opening grid might prove to be a little bit challenging for them. But they put together an interesting package. I was, I was absolutely heartbroken for Leclerc. I think the storylines were writing themselves. And for those of you that don't know, a lot of <laughs> F1 drivers live in Monaco and they live there for income tax purposes and Max lives there and Lewis lives there and Daniel Ricardo lives there and countless others live in Monaco. But Charles Leclerc is actually a Monegasque. He's he's mm-hmm. from Monaco. Interestingly, there have been five racers from Monaco that have raced in a Formula One race there and one has actually qualified a pole before. But the storyline potentially was that this hometown boy was going to qualify on pole and win this race. And then it was just heartbreaking that it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And Maybe now is the right time to talk about this, but that the decision or the gamble, and I don't want to get into the puns because Monaco, Monte Carlo, casinos, (laughs) et cetera, but ultimately Ferrari had made a decision that they were going to run the race with this gearbox. And we had a conversation on Twitter yesterday about the fact that if Ferrari had decided to swap out that gearbox, they were going to take a five-place grid penalty. And the reason for that is that in the Formula One sporting regulations, you have to run the same gearbox for six consecutive events. And if you don't, if you swap it out before then, either because it blows or because you just want to or because of damage from an accident you're going to take a five grid space penalty so the conversation with them was is the gearbox in good enough shape to race if yes let's race and let's race from pole and potentially win the race or if we know it's not we swap it out but we take that five place grid penalty and we start in sixth place they made the decision that they were going to race with that gearbox and they were going to take pole what they didn't know and what they couldn't have known because they couldn't put load through it in the garage was that the left side drive shaft so the the drive shaft on the opposite side of the car to where the car took the impact on those two walls Mm -hmm. it failed and it failed during the formation lap and it was just it was heartbreaking for Leclerc because I think so much of the Formula One world was rallying around this idea of Charles Leclerc winning this race. Mm-hmm. And then it was kind of ripped out from under everybody before before the lights even turned green. You know, I should also mention that uh, that uh, the, the first Monegas to win his home Grand Prix was Louis Chiron, who won it uh, back in 1931. And that was the livery that Charles had on his helmet uh, this, uh, this weekend. He won it a year after Rene Dreyfus, which I wonder if he's related to Chief Inspector Dreyfus from the Pink Panther movies. But that's uh, something uh, completely different. <laughs> Shake your, you're shaking your head there, and rightly so. 
Anyway, just to kind of backing it up there, my my own thoughts about the the, the whole Charles Leclerc incident. I, I don't think that it was uh, in, intentional. Like uh, obviously, um, I think that uh, what happened with, uh, with with Ferrari is that they came out. I think that uh, maybe it was a surprise that they were as competitive as they were, and I think they just went all in, thinking that this might be the one race this season that uh, we're going to have uh, you know a good shot for a really good result. Because I mean, they they've already said publicly that they're really throwing all their resources in to developing the 2022 car so this year's car it's it's basically what you see is what you get and they're not really going to do very much uh, development on it so i think that so this let was... me let me ask you a question sure though. go ahead if you were ferrari yeah and you're mr bonato what decision would you have made you know what in the grand scheme of things you know we can score a bunch of points starting at sixth or we can go for glory from first knowing yeah. that there was a risk that we maybe we don't start the race what do you do in that situation i make the same call look at what happened to danny ricardo a couple of years ago he drove what was it three quarters of the race with uh, yeah. no mguk so i mean he was 25 percent down on power and he still won you know unfortunately it didn't work out for leclerc it didn't work out for ferrari but i think uh it, it was uh it was a gutsy move by mattia bonato but i would have made the same one 100 percent it was, it was yeah, the right I, thing to do at that track. You go for it. I, I completely agree. At the end of the day, they're not racing or competing for a constructor's title or a driver's title. But if you can take a race win at a crown jewel event like Monaco yeah. and you bask in the glory of this and you help build up Charles Leclerc and you help build up his marketing capacity and you help you help continue to satisfy your sponsors, they did absolutely were the right thing. They had everything to win and effectively nothing to lose. And ultimately, he he doesn't start the race and it's heartbreaking and they don't score any points. But those points weren't going to be super meaningful for a team as rich as Ferrari anyways. But I think they did absolutely the right thing and I can't criticize them in any way. Yeah. And you know, as, as, as bad as I felt for Bottas, I, I felt equally as bad for, for Charles Leclerc because, I mean, this is his home Grand Prix there. And I mean, his luck in his Formula One career in his hometown at his home race has been absolutely uh, miserable. He's probably wondering, what do I need to do to, get, to, to to finish this race and have a good result here? Because you have to think that for any driver, if you come from a country that is lucky enough to host a, host a Grand Prix, that that's one of the races that you want to win. I mean, there's obviously you, you want to win any race, but I mean, that hometown race has to be extra special, especially in a very small place like Monaco, which is like four square miles or however ridiculously <laughs> small it is. I mean, it's bigger than that, of course, but I mean, I, it's- I have to give him, I have to give Leclerc credit as well. I think in a lot of cases like this, you're so heartbroken, you shower, you change, and you get out of there. Yeah. He stayed in the garage with his team. He was at the podium to celebrate and congratulate Carlos Sainz. I think from a, just from- the spirit of being a part of that team and being a fabric of the culture of what that team's trying to become, he played it perfectly. Like for yes. me, I think I would have been so heartbroken. I don't want to see anyone. I don't want to <laughs> see the mechanics. I don't want to see Bonato. I'm just going to get out of there. He didn't. He got changed. He stayed with the team. He was in the garage with the mechanics. I, I think he did everything right aside from being able to put that car onto the grid. And ultimately that was kind of his fault because he committed that error. Mm -hmm. But in terms of his response and his reaction to not be able to win compete in this race he did absolutely the right thing and he was there to support his teammate who ultimately did score a podium for this team yeah which is exciting and you know i, I think that uh, and we talked about it recently too but uh, again i think that uh, carlos Sainz, i wouldn't say he's exceeding my my uh expectations but i think he's pleasantly living up to what i would have hoped he could have done soon enough and i mean i think they even talked about it on the the race broadcast today just the amount of teams that uh, that uh, carlos has driven for over the past five or six years and essentially changing cars that often is is such a huge hurdle because it's almost like having to learn uh driving like a brand new formula a different style of a uh, racing car which which was fascinating so i think he's done a great job so far i mean uh, props to uh, charles for sticking around being a good teammate and i think he gets it i think that uh, he's obviously young enough to realize you know i'm at ferrari you know we've got every resource and uh, monetary uh, opportunity behind us it, you know my time is still to come yeah today sucks because again it's my home grand prix again it didn't work out it, it didn't work out but that chance may or may not come. And I'm sure he'll get his chance, obviously, to, I mean, it's bound to happen at some point. And, you know, that bad luck can only go so long. But um, 
where should we go to now? I want to take a I break in a couple think, of minutes. I think okay, you actually go ahead. Teed up the perfect segue. Perfect. So I'm going to interrupt because please I think do. You, you te- inadvertently you teed this up perfectly. So Carlos Sainz makes the transition from an up and coming McLaren team to Ferrari. He puts in an eighth place, a fifth place, finishes out of the points, a seventh, and now a second place finish. He's got 38 points. To your point, I think I feel like he's starting to get comfortable with that team. Mm-hmm. He's starting to get comfortable with that car, and he's really rounding into shape. And I think by the end of the season, he could really be what Ferrari wants him to be. On the other end of the spectrum is another highly qualified driver that made a transition from one team in the offseason to another in Daniel Ricardo. And this is something that a number of our listeners had actually asked us on Twitter to address, which is his season started rough. And mm-hmm. I think there were some early explanations for that, right? He's he's with a new team. It's a new car. It's a new power unit. He needs some time to adjust. But the challenge for Daniel Ricciardo is he doesn't seem to be making any progress. Lando has just scored his second podium of the season. It's the third, fourth time he's finished in the top five. And Ricciardo actually seems to be regressing. And mm-hmm. I want to give everyone a point of reference here. Today, Lando Norris was lapping a second faster, a second faster than his teammate. And I went through some data from the last 10 to 15 years. I couldn't find another example of when that could happen or when that happened without a mechanical explanation or because of weather issues or something like that. What we're seeing is pretty unheard of. And Daniel, obviously, he's I think he's feeling a little bit under the gun. And I want to read this quote here. So the teams record a ton of analytics and a ton of telemetry with the car. So if you're competing with your teammate, they can look at the telemetry and they can say, look, here's where your teammate's braking. Here's where he's accelerating. Here's where he's turning in. Here's where he's changing gears. And a quote from Daniel Ricardo was a little bit shocking. I'm going to read this out. There's differences on the data and it's like, well, this is why Lando is quicker in this corner. And I'm not convinced I'm able to do that. And Hmm. the engineers and Ricardo seem to have identified two key distinct issues that he's facing relative to Lando. One is that he's not rotating the car as effectively in the corner. So he's not making the turn as quickly as Lando is. And that could be a familiarity issue. But the other one is this. He's not able to break as late as Lando. So Lando is able to carry speed into a corner much, much later than Ricardo is. But really, Ricardo's performance so far has been pretty shocking and i just thought the carlos signs conversation about making a transition from one team to another scoring a podium and ricardo on the other end of the spectrum well i got plenty of thoughts on that and i'll give you my thoughts in just a moment as we take a break here and we'll come back and we'll discuss this and more in just a moment so don't go away Okay, well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, I have to, I have to be upfront and clear, and uh, you know, completely honest with you. I, I'm mad at you. You stole my bit there. I mean, I, <laughs> I, 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 I can see it in your face. <laughs> I, I have to give you full credit because I mean, you picked up on it so nicely. But I wanted to kind of like bridge it to. Can we talk about Danny Ricardo? We oh. need to talk about Danny Ricardo. So, you know, good for you for picking up on that. But yeah, I think you raise a number of really, really good points there. And I think the one that is really interesting is just the the, the late breaking thing. Uh, that uh, the issue that was identified that he's breaking or he's not breaking as uh, deep into the corners as Lando is, is not carrying that uh, speed through. I find that fascinating uh, for a couple of reasons because Danny Ricardo is, uh, you know, he's almost built that reputation of the last of the late breakers. That's kind of like been his thing so over true. the past uh, several years. So that is absolutely fascinating. And I, I would agree that uh, I, I feel that uh, he's, he's regressed a little bit. I mean, Lando, of course, has the benefit that he's been with the team for several years now i mean he he's really ingrained in the culture within the team he knows the personnel he knows the car he knows he knows everything i mean what you would expect and i think he's doing a great job as a young driver and obviously that's part of you know a major reason why he got that contract extension just earlier this week right so of course coming into another team is going to be a big issue for somebody. I mean, it's, it's going to be something that's, especially in this day and age, when you have the reduced testing and all these sorts of things. But compared to some of his comrades that also switched teams last year, I'm not so much worried about uh, Sergio Perez. I think over the last two and a half races-ish, I think that I, I'm, I'm in a better place with where Sergio is compared to the first couple of races of the year. I, I think that 
it's slowly starting to turn around. And based on the result that he got today, sure, it wasn't a podium, but the result that he got based on where he started, I think was fantastic for Monaco, brought them the points that they needed. He did the the great supporting job for his team area for the, the, the team in that regard. And yeah, it's, it's only a single point ahead in the constructors at the uh, at this point. But psychologically, that's that gap is huge. I mean, there's now that chink in the armor. And I, I think that, uh, well, for many reasons, this weekend's going to be a wake up call. But uh, for for Mercedes, that is. And then also, just as we talked about Carlos Sainz, he seems to really be settling in nicely at uh, Ferrari. And it'll be interesting to see where he goes. I mean, uh, just to sort of finish off uh, that um, uh, thought that we were talking about before the break and kind of wrap it up uh, nicely with a bow, is if you can get uh, both Carlos and Charles really, really racing well in that car and you give them a competitive car for 22 I think Ferrari could be a real legitimate threat next year. So it's it's really tantalizing if you're a Ferrari fan. But now to kind of bring it full circle and go back to, to Daniel Ricciardo, I'm a little bit worried. I would have expected by this point that he would have been able to get a, a better handle on this car, especially at Monaco. I mean, he's won this race before. He, historically, he he's run well here over the years. And just, I mean, he qualified poorly. And just uh, during the race, I mean, he was... I mean, so far off of the pace, I mean, outside of the points, I mean, at at no point during this uh, race today did I think, oh, well, you know, maybe if Ricardo is a little bit lucky, maybe he'll get a a point out of this. I had no thoughts like that whatsoever. I mean, it also was very fascinating that we didn't have a single safety car, virtual safety car, which is is a rarity in of itself, but... Yeah, the the whole Ricardo thing, it's just, uh, it's mind boggling. I think he's got to go and do some serious uh, soul searching and figuring out what he needs to do to get the best out of this car because his teammate is really, really outperforming and outshining him by a long shot at at this point in time. And that was absolutely the quote that Daniel Ricardo shared coming out of this race weekend, which is, I think oftentimes following a Grand Prix weekend, the, the drivers spend hours, days, a week with their engineers just pouring through the data, pouring through the telemetry, trying to understand what they could have done different, what could have gone wrong. And Daniel made it very clear that he's going to step away from the team for a few days just to breathe and relax and decompress and come mm-hmm. back fresh later this weekend heading into later this week heading into uh, the week of the Baku Grand Prix because I think to your point that's probably what he needs at this point and to be clear it's not like he hasn't been scoring points he's been in the top 10 for the first four races but he's so far away from Lando Norris it's absurd and I think the most striking thing about his performance today was he was lapped by Lando Mm -hmm. and he wasn't having mechanical issues he didn't have a pit issue he wasn't having tire issues he wasn't having mechanical issues and he was lapped by his teammate and ultimately that's what's going to happen if your teammate is is outrunning you by a second a lap. It's it's not sustainable. He's obviously a great driver. And to your point, he's won here before. He potentially would have won here twice if not for that crazy tire issue back in. I think it was probably 16. Uh, but... But yeah, a little bit, a little bit shocking to be totally honest. Yeah, and uh, that uh, that one point uh, that you mentioned, uh, how he was lapped by uh, by Lando, that was brought up by, by Joe Santucci at ATX Santucci. He mentioned that on Twitter as well. Uh, a number of people uh, picked up on a couple of things. Uh, Carlos Hernandez at Old Vinyls, he uh, mentioned, I was surprised by Ocon's inability to overtake Stroll after Stroll pitted and then falling behind or falling so far behind. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a combination of Monaco being Monaco and that uh, the Alpine, despite that uh, we've talked about it before, that uh, Ocon seems to be maybe flying under the the, the the radar as maybe a bit of an underrated and underappreciated driver. I, I think it's just a combination of the, the the fact that, you know, the car isn't the greatest on a track that uh, is pretty tough to pass on it uh, at, uh, at under any uh, uh, circumstances, pardon me. And then a couple uh, here that I think are interesting from uh, Apache the Pirate and Rob Ledoux. We'll forgive uh, Rob for the, the Maple Leafs uh, avatar on his Twitter handle, <laughs> but hey, we're, we're, we're not going to start petty arguments over uh, hockey here, even though it is playoffs. Um, anyhow, they were both uh, talking about, and I know you've been playing chain bear on uh, on the show recently anyways grant kind of kicked off the, this conversation said uh, chain bear uh, sorry chain bear uh, said this and i'd love to get your thoughts and the quote is 
has F1 outgrown Monaco? And uh, Rob was pretty much ask, uh, asking this, uh, the, the same thing. And yeah, I, I think it has. I, I think that, um, you know, without a doubt, this is my least favorite race of the entire year. I know that it's it's basically, you know, Formula One racing at home for all the reasons that you mentioned. Then there's the, the historical t- context uh, of it as well. But, you know, I, I guess there's that kind of glamour to it as as well. But... I don't know. I, I'm I'm just I'm just not a fan of the circuit itself. I mean, I I do find it a bit of a novelty. I do kind of enjoy to kind of see the glitz and the glamour. I know Serena Williams was there to to wave the checkered flag, and then you also always have the the, the uh, Prince Rainier or whatever the uh, his his name is. I'm not going to get an invite from the royal family of Monaco anytime soon with that uh, embarrassing plug. But you know what I mean, right? I mean, there's that sort of uh, I guess that opulence and that uh, you know that kind of feel to it, and that that's part of the I guess the draw of it uh, from 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 that point but racing itself i i think so i th- the cars aren't suited to the track the track is too tight it's too narrow there's it's too slow it's it's just it's it's not fun to watch i hate that you were you use the word novelty because it seems apt it actually <clears throat> seems accurate and i don't think formula one has outgrown monaco in an economic sense it no. still makes economic sense for the sport but in terms of the vehicles themselves, absolutely. And I've got some interesting data here because I wanted to go back and try to get a, a sense of how big these cars have become. As much as Bottas and Hamilton, and Hamilton spoke quite a lot this weekend about how how much he hates this race. He's like, it's boring from the front. It's boring from the back. There's no passing. There's no racing. It's really a procession. But ultimately, the biggest challenge here isn't the track because you can't change the track. Ultimately, you're not going to start blowing up buildings to make corners wider and create runoff area. The track is the track. There's very, very, very little they can do. The problem is the cars. And this was a point that a number of our listeners, including Dead Randy, kind of reinforced, which is the cars have gotten too big. And let me (laughs) share some data. If you go back to 2007, so the specifications here are the F2007, Ferrari's 2007 Challenger, and the SF90, which is Ferrari's 2019 Challenger. The 2007 car was 179 inches long. The 2019 car was 224 inches. The cars have grown by three and a half feet in length, and the wheelbase has grown by a foot and a half. And we also posted some illustrations on the Twitter. So please go follow us on Twitter so you can see these things. But the cars have become absurdly large. So whatever opportunity there was for passing, it diminishes when the cars get to be so absurdly long. And not only that they long, they've gotten wider as well. They haven't gotten taller naturally, but they're just that much bigger, which makes it physically more challenging. So I think in the sense that have has F1 outgrown Monaco physically, yes, and economically, no. And I'm afraid it's going to remain a novelty because it means so much to the sport from a legacy and a tradition and a monetary mm-hmm. perspective, but we're never going to see great racing here. And I'll be honest, I actually watched a little bit of the F2 sprint race on Saturday, our time, and it was wet. And I was excited, like, is there a chance that we could have moisture for Sunday? And of course we didn't, but that's really the only thing that can make this race exciting. That or a safety car, which bunches up the pack and it mm-hmm. kind of enables a, a start, a restart during the course of the race. But other than that, there was nothing. And that was maybe the other challenge today, too, is I had predicted that we were going to see four or five or six cars not finish the race. And I think a lot of our listeners had reached out and said the exact same thing, like how many cars are actually going to finish? How many cars are going to finish? But a lot of the drivers drove very conservatively, and it meant that there wasn't a lot of damage or crashes and that there weren't any safety cars, which just reinforced how boring the race could be without those stops and those restarts during the course of the action. Well, I, I think that uh, you uh, painted that picture nicely when we talked about the start of the race going into Sandoval at, uh, at the turn one there at the start of the race. And the way that, the way that Max angled his car was that he was going to even, even though he had the, or despite the fact he had the, 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 uh, I, the suboptimal start compared to Bottas, he was just always kind of driving that along that that angle, anyways. And as long as he was going to um, be in front of Bottas, the decision as to what was going to happen that corner was always going to be up to to, to Bottas because ultimately. 
he would drive into Max and then uh, cause a collision and then that would be it. But I mean, I was surprised that they, you know, all 20 cars, well, I guess 19 cars, made it through that corner without the the, the sort of traditional shower of car- carbon fiber. Carbon fiber. You know, and then just the fact that we even talked about it when we did the preview on Thursday night is that there were, you know, the only mechanical uh, failure of the entire race besides Charles, which is a bit of a question as to the origin of that driveshaft uh, failure, was, was Bottas. And that was a wheel nut. It wasn't an MGUK. It wasn't uh, overheating exactly. brakes. It wasn't a radiator. It wasn't any other, you know, brakes or anything else that it could have been. And that was very surprising. And the fact that nobody tagged a barrier, nobody crashed uh, during the race. I mean, it's um, it, it was unusual. And uh, from sadly, from that point of view, it kind of made it a, a little bit of a not the most exciting uh, race. Now, I want to go back uh, to the Twitter. We got uh, another message here. Uh, this one, uh, this time is from uh, Betangura William. Uh, he touched on a bunch of things, including uh, Max, uh, Carlos Sainz, uh, Perez. The one thing that we haven't talk, uh, talked about, and uh, he mentioned it, uh, and that's Vettel's comeback. I think that uh, obviously this has been a bit of a, a tough start for Sebastian Vettel at uh, Aston Martin. Obviously, they've had some uh, issues uh, with the car. Obviously, he had some issues with himself in the very first race when he drove up the backside of Esteban Ocon Bahrain, and he struggled a little bit. But uh, I-, I think that uh, he's got to be pleased with that. Uh, I-, I mean, he's got to you know build on this, of course, going into the next race in Baku and, uh, and beyond. But I think that uh, this was a nice... I don't want to say a reset uh, for for Aston Martin, but I think this was finally a race. I think that uh, they might breathe a sigh of relief. Seb in the top five, both cars in the top 10, double points finish. And even though they, they weren't really super racy, both cars finished. And I think that's good for them. I think it's fantastic for Aston Martin. If nothing else, it takes a little bit of the edge, a little bit of the pressure off because to back this up, this is the first time this year Sebastian Vettel's been in the points. And I think it was probably a huge relief for him to get that monkey off his back. And as much as it's been challenging for Vettel, Stroll's really struggled as well. He was in the points the first two races, and then he finished out of the points in the third and the fourth race of the championship. And if you look at the final classification today, so Max Verstappen make, made up a position, but really that was just a downstream knock-on effect of the fact that Leclerc wasn't able to start the race. Carlos Sainz finished up two places. Lando Norris finished up two places. Sergio Perez, terrific performance, finished up five places. Sebastian Vettel picked up three spots, and Lance Stroll picked up five spots. So as good a day as it was for Vettel, Lance Stroll also put in a tidy little performance. And yep. both of them throughout the course of the race. I, and I, I think Lance had a little bit of a, a miscue when he hit the curbs at one point. He was lucky he didn't end up in a barrier himself or suffer any suspension or floor damage. But ultimately, it was a nice weekend for Aston Martin. And I think I, I can't remember on Thursday, did I predict that they would be out of the points or if I predicted they would be in the points? Obviously, it wasn't a meaningful prediction, but to your point, I think it was a, a great weekend for them. And I think from their perspective, maybe they can build on this a little bit. And given the fact that we're going into another funky race in Baku, which is kind of a hybrid of a Monaco and a more traditional track, simply because they have that long straightaway yeah. along the starting grid, it'll be interesting to see how they look come going into that race after a double points finish in Monaco. Yeah, it's going to be very very interesting to see how they build on this. I mean, obviously that they have issues with that car what with the the, the whole high rake or low rake whatever it is. The, the the problems that they've had with the the new aero rules for this year and the and the problems that they've had to adapt and the fact that um, they they've just uh, basically struggled right out of the gate. And uh yeah, it, it will be interesting because I mean Baku like you say is a very interesting track because a lot of the co- the corners on that track and a lot of the segments on that track are very Monaco-esque. Yeah. But then you throw in that very long that that straightaway that's a bit of a dog leg is uh, or dog legs uh, to the left about uh, about a third to a half away down that uh, that straightaway and then you you pass the 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 pit entrance you pass start finish and then you go into that 90 degree left hander and then into another 90 degree left hander after a little the short run up uh, into turn 2 so it's it's a difficult track because you know it like i say i mean it it does it, it does uh 
match Monaco in some ways, but the the fact that you throw that very very long straightaway in there makes it uh, very interesting, and that's why I think it's gonna be uh, it'll be fun to see what uh, Ferrari can do there, because obviously that that top end speed was not such a crucial factor today, and uh, you know they they did everything they could to work to the uh, I guess you say the the strengths of that car, and uh, we'll see if they can do that uh, at the next race. Out, so, hey, got a couple more thoughts. I want to get to those in a moment, and we'll do that as we take a f- our final break here. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, Mark. Well, welcome back to you and to everyone. Just a couple more things that uh, we want to get to. Just wanted to go back and look at uh, the Twitters. A uh, couple more uh, uh, tweets here from Matt Davy Rattan. Uh, he was talking about uh, Charles Leclerc and also uh, 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 Lando Norris. Uh, we also had one here from Matt Broncos Elite. Uh, he was uh, just uh, talking about uh, the comments from Leclerc, Bottas, Lewis, and more. Just uh, changing uh, the the layout of the track somehow. I think we addressed that already. But I mean, it's interesting too, because we've seen this at other tracks. I mean, uh, that's why I'm looking forward to seeing the the upgraded or updated uh, Albert Park track pardon me, Albert Park track in uh, Australia later this year. We saw the changes at Turn 10 in uh, Spain a couple of weeks ago. And that's the one thing that uh, they they just can't do in Monaco. I mean, we've seen it work in other places, but when you have immovable objects like buildings rather than gravel traps and grass, it really makes it uh, a little bit uh, difficult. Uh, But still... You know, you would hope that they might be able to do something, but I just, uh, like you so you know eloquently put it, just the physical confines and uh, just the, the layout of Monaco itself basically makes it a, a non-factor, you know, cost prohibitively, cost prohibitively. So I shouldn't use words I can't pronounce, right? And then uh, uh, BJ Crabtree had a couple things to talk about. Uh, he was, first of all, he was complaining about uh, cutting to uh, TV commercials during one of the only passes of the race. I can completely understand that. And, and full disclosure here, we, we're not affiliated with the F1 TV, but, uh, you know, I, I've signed up for it uh, this year and I've been watching on F1 TV and it is just so much of a difference how much my own race experience has like improved with not having to worry about, uh, you know, the, 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 the producer back in the studio cutting to commercials at a, a very awkward moment, which has been my complaint uh, for years and years and years. I've still been PVRing everything, but uh, I've just been casting everything to, uh, the, the the TV, my Apple TV from my my, my phone, and it's just uh, it's been phenomenal. I'm, I'm just really enjoying that. So, BJ, I'm not suggesting you go that way, but I guess kind of I am. You know, if you can spare the, the you know some spare coin, then maybe that's something you want to consider. And then a couple other things. He was just talking about the uh, the relationship uh, between uh, Carlos and Norris, which I think was really nicely um, worked at a DTS last year. He had a comment, uh, what he called the big whiff on uh, Mercedes pit strategy after dominating last week. Uh, and then uh, he said at the end, love Serena, but let Max Verstappen shine. So, you know, but again, I, I guess that's kind of that, um, I don't want to say love affair that Formula One has kind of with like A-list uh, celebrities, but especially yeah, at Monaco. Yeah, especially at Monaco. That's when they're going to kind of play up uh, that, that that angle. But yeah, you know, uh a lot of different uh, things there, but yeah, I mean, uh, I guess I would have liked to see a little bit more attention on Max, but yeah, you're, you're going to get a lot of the glitz and uh, that sort of stuff, uh, regardless who wins or whatever happens at uh, at Monaco. The, the only thing I want to add, and I have a feeling this might be what BJ is actually referring to here, is there was an awful lot of angst on Twitter today about the fact that at the precise moment, the ultra exciting duel between Gasly and Vettel was happening. The race director of the broadcast Mm. actually cut to Lance hitting curbs. So we actually (laughs) missed possibly the most exciting moment in the race. And the actual commentator spoke on this. So I did a little bit of research, a little bit of half-ass internet research. I went to Google and I searched for F1 broadcast directors. And as it turns out, and this is kind of interesting, Historically, Formula One has owned the entire production of the race broadcast. Camera placement, cameras, race directors, commentary, everything. They own it all. And then Sky provides their own commentary. 
For a couple of races, the British Grand Prix, the Japanese Grand Prix, and Monaco, they actually defer to local television stations. So they lend them some of their infrastructure, some of their cameras, the helicopter shots and things like that. But ultimately, they leave it up to those individual TV stations to piece Mm -hmm. together the broadcast. In recent years, they've stopped in the UK and they've stopped in Japan. So Monaco now is the only event where a local television station, it's actually a French TV station, TMC, um, pieces together the race. So they actually actually have somebody outside of formula one that performs the race directing duties so what you're seeing on your tv isn't actually being dictated by formula one itself who as you can probably guess knows the sport it's actually being dictated by a sports director from this french tv station so there was a ton of criticism today about the fact that the race direction was terrible why isn't formula one doing it themselves Mm -hmm. my sense is that they probably will next year that this was probably a tipping point and they're probably not going to defer to external counsel to produce their f1 races especially especially if it's going to create so much so much negativity yeah, I mean, especially when it's uh, going to be, like you called it earlier, one of the crown jewel events on the entire calendar. Exactly. You know, they're, they're going to want to make sure that uh, regardless what hap- happens on the track, that uh, the, the the TV production side of it is going to be absolutely uh, first class. And, you know, it, it is kind of funny, too, because, um, you know, you draw like uh, some parallels with other big sports. I mean, specifically like the NFL. I mean, everything when it comes to like the NFL, I, I, I don't want to say it's... Uh, I, I guess the best way to uh, describe uh, an NFL broadcast is manicured. I mean, the the, the way oh, that they're so, so precise. So. I mean, the amount of time that they have for like uh, commercials to seven minutes for halftime and all these different things. It is just, uh, it, it it's like a, as precise as a Japanese train schedule or a Swiss watch. <laughs> I mean, it is it is impressive how they, yep. they package it up and produce it. And I think that's, uh, that's obviously something that uh, Formula One needs to address in some of these, uh, you know, races in some of these cases. Because the, the, the difference today was noticeable, you know, when uh, you, you kind of get the, the, the focus of somebody that's, you know, obviously very good at their job, but maybe just doesn't have that uh, that little extra bonus uh, of that uh, that knowledge that you need to produce, uh, you know, a specialized event uh, like a Grand Prix. So anyways, what else do we have? Did we, we got a little bit of time left. Did you want to throw in a, a MotoGP corner? You, you know, I, I'm giving you the opportunity here, you know. You know what's funny? For the first time ever, I'm going to defer. You're going to defer. I didn't come in hot. I didn't come in fired up to talk about MotoGP. But I think I will take a minute to plug our social media presence. Sure. We do have Twitter. We have a Twitter account. And I just want to thank, and I'm not going to, I'm never going to name somebody unless you reach out and ask us a specific question or something like that, in which case I think it's kind of implied that you want us to uh, refer to you on the air, which I know as a, as a listener and a contributor of questions to other podcasts, it's something that I always enjoy. But the number of folks that have added us on Twitter over the last few days and weeks is amazing. And my commitment always is that if you do add us, we'll make the effort to reach out. We'll say thank you. And we're happy to engage answer your questions. What we're trying to build on Twitter is really just a community. And I would encourage and implore everybody to join because ultimately the direction of the show is really driven by the questions that that a lot of you ask and the themes and the things that you're interested in. And even today, the entire structure of the show was built around the things that you found interesting and curious about the Grand Prix. So once again, if you haven't added us on Twitter, even if you're not a big Twitter user, I encourage you to add us there. We're trying to add a lot of value, especially knowing that a lot of our listeners are newer to Formula One. The things that we're tweeting, the context that we're providing, the things that we're retweeting and the context that we're providing, uh, we're trying to cater to an audience that's coming into the sport um, or has been in the sport for a while, but maybe wants to kind of have a bit of a refresher on some things. So anything we post, we try to provide some context. We try to provide a lot of resources, but we also just want to have a lot of fun. So if you haven't added us, please do. We really would enjoy it if you could. Um, But I think that's it. It's just something I've wanted to plug for a while because I feel like we're getting a little bit of momentum now. We're committing some time. We're creating some branded collateral to make it a little bit more lively and specific to us and and our, our family and our community. But if you haven't, please do. And then finally as well, just a last minute plug. If you do subscribe, which I hope you do if you're listening to us, please go to whatever podcast platform you're using, whether it's iTunes or whatever the Google variation is. I'm not super, super familiar with the Android devices. Please subscribe if you haven't. Give us a review. Um, Give us five stars, four stars, whatever you feel comfortable giving us based on what you think of our efforts and the production quality and things like that. We really appreciate it. And just to be ultra clear to everybody here, we're not making 
any money doing this. We're doing this for fun because we love the sport, because we're passionate about sports journalism and broadcasting and all those kind of things. But we just want to be able to create a product that all of you are proud of and that you enjoy. So I don't know if you want to add anything on to that long rambling speech that would no, otherwise that... have been MotoGP corner. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I guess it was social media corner this uh, this time. Out. But yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. You know, I love the fact that, uh, you know, so many people have been uh, getting in touch. Love the fact that, uh, you know, so many messages uh, recently have been not just from Gen DTS, but also from people, hey, you know, I've been into Formula One for, for a lot of time, but I got out of it for a few years, but now I'm getting back into it from and been checking out your podcast, uh, DTS, all these different things. Love hearing all these things. And, you know, get in touch, you know, ask us a question, leave a comment. We we just love talking about Formula One. So we're, we're more than happy to answer that. And it, it's just fun. We just like talking about uh, different things. And if we can uh, make it understandable, enjoyable for, for all of you that, uh, that uh, regardless if you've been a fan for a week or 20 or 30 years, 50 years, whatever it is it's it's all good i mean the common denominator is we're, we're all formula one fans and uh, we, we love the sport and that's uh, what, what it's all about so you know i don't have anything else uh, today you know you know if you're going to do sort of these moto gp corner you know maybe i should do uh, you know we're already kind of like two-thirds of the way through the giro d'italia maybe i'll do cycling corner in time for the tour in july so uh, <laughs> we'll see oh, I, that, that's not a, that, that that's just an idle thread i'm not going to go through with it guys but uh, <laughs> anyway so let, let's get out uh, you know what well, things are still going good and the whole thing doesn't implode on us. So let's just uh, wrap it up there. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, again, our Twitter handle at ScuderiaF1Pod. And if you also want to send an email, you can also do that at ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com. And that's it. On behalf of myself and Mark Hamilton, enjoy the rest of uh, your weekend. Uh, if you've got uh, tomorrow off, enjoy the rest of your week or didn't start the enjoy the start of the new week, I should say. And uh, we'll be back in a couple of days with the weekly show. Until then, take care, stay in touch, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye for now.